Welcome to my podcast and today I'm sitting in the morning room which is a beautiful sunlit room on the south side of the castle and my guest is one of my bestest girlfriends who I met at university I think rather too many years than I'm going to admit to. So welcome, Smiles. Thank you so much for coming with me today. Now, my bestest girlfriend is actually really called Susanna de Ferry Foster, but she was born Susanna Smiley. And as you can imagine, she was nicknamed Smiles. So throughout the podcast, she smiles to me and I hope to all of you. (laughs) But Smiles, I remember very clearly meeting you at St Andrews University, where we both went after school and... When I arrived there, I thought you were incredibly a part of the trendy crowd and you were a fantastic horse rider and you were starting a horse riding club or something. I thought, oh, God, I remember it vividly. Do you remember we were outside the supermarket, the only supermarket in St Andrews, and you had wanted to seek me out because you were interested in joining the riding club I'd recently resurrected. And I'd heard that you were the the it girl around town and the person who threw the best parties and was definitely someone to get to know. And so we did meet. I was so overwhelmed that, um, you know, that you were interested in meeting me that I slammed the boot of my little car shut and there was a mop inside and it smashed the black back windscreen and... uh, (laughs) By which time I'd walked away, so I didn't know of this disaster. I'm so sorry. And which was extraordinary. And then, obviously, in one of our years at St Andrews, uh, you very kindly let me share your house with you. It was an amazing year because you and your parents had cleverly bought a flat in St Andrews in the middle of the of the town, which you could then rent out to um, golfers, etc., during the summer, and was available for you to share and rent to your girlfriends and other friends during the term times. Yeah, it, was it, was, it was, it was, it was, I was so fortunate because it was lovely to be able to choose who I had as a flatmate. And actually, financially, it, it really worked for us. I mean, as you said, we let it out during the holidays and it enabled my brother and I to put a deposit on a, our first flat in London eventually yeah, it was. but what amuses me is that um, of course in those days you were a tenant of my mother's and now she is living in one of the cottages in the park and you are her landlady <laughs> I know and it's like it's gone full turn it's like, I know I think she's a better tenant than I necessarily was at the time, <laughs> I couldn't I, possibly comment <laughs> I had to write several begging letters saying I'm so sorry about the party and the fact that there were rather too many people in the flat and they drank probably a little bit too much it was a little bit too noisy, whereas um, she's obviously a, a really charming... Ten- I have to say, she does lose most things, though, most of the time. So she's, <laughs> she's a regular person up at, the, up at the estate office because something has been lost. And if you go down to her house, you catch her disease and you always lose everything in there too, which is so funny. <laughs> but and it's just a joy having her here. And I hope she's happy going for walks with her dog, Alfie, and I've got a dog, Alfie, and living opposite Gwen and other wonderful people in the park so it's um it's a community and I think I particularly post Covid it's being part of a community and that really helps us go forward doesn't it definitely definitely I was just thinking back again to those St Andrews days it was just a, a wonderful wonderful few years there and I think we really honed our our, our hosting skills I do Although- say <laughs> I think I got a degree in partying but then after that 
both of us became a little bit more serious as you joined different financial institutions from Casanova's to other banks. And I then became a chartered accountant, I think, to everyone's surprise, including my own and my parents. Well, I think your father uh, very much insisted that you, you, you a professional qualification would set you a good sort. set. And it, yes. He didn't prescribe Not whether it should be accountancy or law, but very much encouraged you down that route, which was really good advice. I, I think it was, and I never regret doing it, although, funnily enough, in today's world, I spend more time on legal contracts and wonder if that wouldn't have been more useful having said that. I found the, the knowledge you pick up as a chartered accountant and the... In some ways, the elegance of the debit and credits is, is incredibly useful and hopefully it means that Geordie and I are not being such busy fools. We need to make sure that it does work out for us here because we are, after all, a There's business. a partnership of equals that way, you know. Well, I don't know about that, but... And also, I understand about budgets because I don't think I've ever hit a budget on decoration <laughs> here, but anyway. <laughs> I do remember, Smiles, that... And then later on, we've always shared a love of horses and you were point-to-pointing at one stage and very kindly um, let me look after one of your point-to-pointers. Oh, dear Reggie. Yes. As he got older. I think Geordie rather enjoyed having him um, as part of the, the stables because it, it was, he was, whilst he was a racehorse, he was a very civilised ride and he was a big horse, but he had the most wonderful, wonderful walk and canter and um, as long as you didn't point him at a fence. Do you remember? I do. A time where I got slightly <laughs> run away with. <laughs> and instead of thing, I think I was howling with laughter as I went in pursuit. I lost lost most of your tack, actually. <laughs> it flew out as you as you ploughed onwards. And he actually, I suddenly realised that he had taken you three miles round to point to point. So this was going to be quite a long canter on my part to try and catch up with you at some point. That was extraordinary. He was a lovely person, except he was impossible to catch. Yes, yes. And you could, you, various ruses to get him into a corner were completely ineffectual. No, uh, I perfected one, actually, with a oh, lunch group. Yes, I did. And, and How on earth did that work? Um, I'd, he actually respected the rope, which was reasonably high, so he didn't ever try and jump it. And as he was then brought closer and closer into a corner, he looked at me and said, OK... Here's my head. Here's my head collar then. <laughs> and and we, we went like that. But it was a two two person catch. I always used to reckon you had to add another forty five minutes to your riding time just to catch him. That also might be true and then not not easy sometimes. But also of course whenever you're in a hurry, horses never do what you want. It's always quite interesting. And then of course, Miles, you came to my wedding to Geordie. So Absolutely. Gosh, that was that was lovely. That was um in the Savoy Chapel. It was a very small wedding and it was a lovely wedding. It was after my father had died. My uncle had flown over to give me away, and um, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapel next door to the Savoy Hotel, and it's still part of the um, Duchy of Lancaster, so as in part of the um, gift of the Queen, now the King, part of the Crown. So it was, it was just really special. My and you looked a bit it. like heroin out of a Jane Austen novel. You had that that, that <laughs> wonderful dress, which very much yeah. was, you know. Well, I loved Jane Austen. Mm. Such an extraordinary author. So, so we definitely spent a lot of time growing up together. And you organised my hen party around London, which was enormous fun, that treasure hunt. I know. I did rhyming couplets for all the clues. 
My mother did help on that. I don't know if I ever admitted that. No. You were very keen that it involved all your sisters, all five of them, and um, in the, and some of them were, were still at school and weren't earning, and you were very insistent that it shouldn't be expensive and it should be inclusive and it should, you know, involve London. And, yes. Um, I think I, 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 I met the brief. No, no, it was amazing. <laughs> it was an amazing day, Smiles, and then... After that, as I was living between London and here, and then increasingly down here, you've been on many holidays with me down here. And when you first came here, Smiles, I guess my parents-in-law were giving lunches or dinners here. Of course, they never actually moved into the castle in the way that we have, but it was still an amazing place to come and dine, wasn't it? Oh, it was. I mean, I remember you, you were you were living in one of the cottages down near where my mother is now. Yeah. And we, we, we walked up and I just remember just the, the view as you came, you know, as you came around the corner and, and, and saw that just amazing view. And it never goes away. I mean, I've been here, I don't know how many times, and there's still that anticipation and excitement as you draw up and... You know, obviously, it's 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 um it's much more lived in now. You 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 know, it's it's very much more of a home than I first remember it. Um, and the just the treat of of staying here and getting the high clear experience. Because I I'm from my point of view, you know, you hear you have the cars coming up with the lights on, perhaps on a Friday evening, and then the lights spilling out of the castle, which I always think is warm and wonderful and Louis and Matthew whoever's there opening the door and the excitement of the arrivals for me as well because we work so hard Geordie and I I, I, but the other side of it is just relaxing and sharing it with friends which is so special and finding showing people up to their bedroom and welcoming them with a cocktail can't go wrong (laughs) I do remember one New Year's Eve and I brought along my young, my eldest son Harry, who must have been less than one, and oh we God, that was him, so funny. <laughs> we put him with some difficulty to sleep, and uh, um, enjoyed a lovely New Year's Eve. Um, we did lots of reeling, and then a piper decided that it would be much better to stand on the upstairs. Um, <laughs> balcony um, and, and stood right outside Harry's bedroom and started up the bagpipes at 5 to 12. Yes, I do remember that. It was not, I remember your face. It was not a happy space. He did not enjoy the sound of bagpipes. Whereas I absolutely love it. It was really, really funny. One New Year's Eve when you were here, we'd, I'd hired a karaoke machine. Oh, I'll never forget. It was just so simply appallingly embarrassing. I remember several of, of our my friends standing there with tears running down their face. It was just so dreadful. What's rather wonderful is all these years later, and I don't feel that much older than when I met you, you then come on board to help me with the Earl and the Pharaoh book when I thought, oh my goodness, how can I complete all this research? Because I realised how many horses and how involved the fifth earl was in horse breeding and I just didn't physically have the time and I remembered from university that you'd done a thesis on bloodstock and breeding so I thought I think smiles need something to I, do. <laughs> I was trying to find a way to make um, the, my <coughs> economics degree a little bit more um, interesting and I realized I was going to have to spend most of the Easter holidays researching for my my dissertation um, and so I came up with this with this rather 
brilliant idea that I would try and get it involved with racing and the bloodstock industry. And I think most of the um, work I had to do was persuading the powers that be that it was a viable subject. Anyway, I spent my Easter holidays in Newmarket, which was, which was rather fun. But anyway, yes, I, I adored working with you on the Earl and the Pharaoh. I mean, it was quite difficult to get some of the, you know, the, the, the information. He started his, his racing sort of interest in France with half a dozen horses in France before he then sort of set up a, a similar stable in Newmarket. This was before Dick Dawson's time, but um, it was a challenge to, you know, sort of to locate the information and to sort of get it all together. But it's, it's research is something I really enjoy. Well, it's fantastic. And I think we've now got a, a whole collection of documents and archives which uh, explore the subject in a far better way. And having done that sort of horsepower, I'd done some rudimentary research into the Fifth Earl's love of cars and mm. planes. So I, I appropriated Support you for, <laughs> for further help around that. And so, some of the information you found and distilled was, was just brilliant. It was so interesting. Some of the stories, the story you found about the fifth earl and the white shoes. Oh, yes, absolutely. So he was at Ascot in the royal enclosure. And the Prince of Wales, who was very a stickler for etiquette, suddenly noticed that there was this gentleman wearing white shoes in the royal enclosure. It's a real no-no. Anyway, he sent down some, some representative to tell Lord Carnarvon to, to um, remove himself until he could dress properly. Um, and far from being outraged at being removed from the royal enclosure, he just made his way to the paddock and spent the rest of the afternoon there watching the horses, where I think he was much happier. He really did love the horses, didn't he? Mm. Just not, the social, not as well as the social occasion. And yes. He, he thoroughly enjoyed being slightly outrageous in his dress. He was quite a dandy, which I hadn't realised at all. And I remember he um, attended his sister's wedding reception in his dressing gown, clearly an right silk dressing gown. But I, I mean, thought... a true eccentric, um, but also quite practical. I mean, his hats, which everyone commented on, were, were quite broad-rimmed and um, obviously suitable for, you know, when he was out in Egypt in the heat. And, and there was a practical element to, to some of the way the way he dressed, and he didn't really give a, 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 a two hoots about what people thought, no. which is rather lovely, actually. No, it is rather lovely. He was not dressing for other people's approbation, was no. he? He was dressing to amuse himself or for practicality. I think Geordie must have inherited his um, great-grandfather's love of racing and racehorses, and, of course, his father, because his father was racing manager to the Queen, and... That particular topic gave the late Queen such joy and you know, her face would light up when she was here. Oh, absolutely. Although probably not quite on the scale of, of Geordie's great-grandfather, who I think probably around about the, the early 1900s had about 30 horses in training, and that was excluding the broodmares. Um, I mean, just a completely different scale in those days. Yes, no, I, I think we're not going to go quite there, but it, honestly, it gives Geordie such pleasure. He loves it, from the foal being born to getting on the racetrack. It's such excitement. And a winner recently. And a winner, I know, marvellous. Yeah. So there was that one. And then, of course, I do remember, because I'd researched de Havilland and done quite a lot of work on the first the plane first taking off from here in 1910. Mm. And I had some basic knowledge of, Jeff, of Geoffrey Moore Brabazon, again, one of the earliest aviators, 
fascinating characters in this country, but you managed to pull up a lot more on more Brabazon than I knew. There was some very, very good local paper reporting on particularly de Havilland's first flight. And there was a journalist who wrote several pieces for the Newbury Herald, I think. You had the British newspaper archives access for me and and I was able to to glean quite a lot more from that. But it was so interesting because you can, it's by putting the right words in the archive, isn't Mm. it? It's the search, yeah, it's the the search engine and and knowing what what to put in to actually, you you can spend two hours looking for what you want and you have to try different And then different to work out the words. parameters. So I found mm. that very interesting because obviously when I was writing my first books, I went into the actual archives of the Times, yeah. uh, which took quite a long time to do. And I went in there with Nora at the time, Nora Sutcliffe, who's an amazing, lovely um, lady in PA. But um, being able to access it through the computers was... Online access just fantastic. saves a lot of time. It meant I could actually do some of the research from home. But again, it was the key search words and then the parameters. Otherwise, you put in one word and you got so much that you couldn't possibly go through it or you came up with nothing. I found that fascinating. David Reimler was such a lesson in point to me because when we were looking for correspondence about the creation of the Dominion of Canada, obviously I was looking for Carnarvon, but he was the one who was looking for um, de Grey, who was Queen Victoria's private secretary. So I, I'd missed that entirely because obviously that was to whom Lord Carnarvon was writing. Right. So it was he was the one who be, has helped me enormously just think a little bit rather than research in a random fashion. And the Earl and the Pharaoh had such broad themes running through it from the Egyptian side to the cars, the horses, the aviation, life here and royalty, as well as obviously the discovery of the Valley of the Kings and early cinema and things. So it, it was an enormous It was amount. a massive undertaking, let's face it. I mean, we, I think you made the deadline by about two minutes. Yes, <laughs> which was quite something. And it was a wonderful way of, I suppose, re-energising our friendship, which was always there, Smiles, but it's been amazing having some projects. Mm. And also, we, we are, we're, we're godmothers to each other's children, oh, yeah. which you know, definitely keeps us in touch reg- you know, on a regular basis. And now my mother's here, that's another reason why we're not going to lose touch anytime soon, oh, are no. we? <laughs> but it's also some of that I've thoroughly enjoyed working with you again it's been amazing fun and it keeps the little gray cells working in our heads as well and we've done some, we've done some work together with the festival in in the autumn which has yes been, the history festival yeah. which began at the end of covid and which we're going forward to strongly every october now and 2023 is about the legacy of tutankhamun i thought we then might move into d-day and then to think about the end of the Second World War and what came out of it and raise the money for charities as well and think about those who serve and those who save. So those are my themes going forward using the castle as visible history. But quite fun because I chuck ideas at you. and <laughs> See what I come back with. Yes. <laughs> Which I thought would be really interesting and encouraging people to read. How can we persuade people to read and to listen as well as read? And I've written now, I think, three coffee table books which involve cooking. And you were very instrumental in helping me hone some more cooking skills, as well as abandoning you to cooking while I was in the bar. I was about to say, I mean, you were, you were rather better at preparing to greet guests and greeting them and left the rather more mundane tasks of, of actually feeding the hordes to me. Although um, I think I probably, some of it did rub off. And I noticed that you did put a couple of my recipes um, or, or inspired 
recipes in, into your into your seasons book. Yes, no, definitely. I mean, I think pears and red wine is such a great recipe, which I think I was your assistant chef helping prepare for the a big lunch or dinner. I, I did a the... charity dinner, a town and gown dinner. I did it two years running. I think it was 150 people in that tiny flat I was cooking from and... Uh, I just had to rope in all the help I could. So you may well have been peeling 150 pears, yeah. No, I, I think I helped you with the pears. And I remember there was venison. It was actually, I can remember, it was a parsnip and apple soup, the, the year I was helping you. Then it was venison. And then it was the um, pears in a red wine jus. The brief was three-course dinner for five pounds head, including venison as the main course. No, I remember that. <laughs> It was great, and I do remember huge vats of saucepans with the pears simmering, which was delicious, and it gives them such beautiful colour, actually. It's still one of my favourite puddings, but I think food is about memories, and when I was writing the Christmas at Highclere book, it brought back my memories of of cooking with you or cooking with my my mother or her love of apple charlotte crumble which was definitely a go-to in my and i think the first the first cookbook i gave you was a mary berry one this is not hilarious yeah mary berry of course came to cook with us for a cooking show and she was here for two weeks which was such a joy that must have been wonderful I remain a great fan of hers. It, it's um, she's an enormously fun lady to work with. With all the cooking and your parents living in Gloucestershire and the huge breakfasts on the Arga and things like that, it and, and the, the, the racing, the racing lunches, the racing lunches, and I cut the nose off a brie, which I'll never forget. Oh God, did you get told off? I certainly did. I think I think your mother told me off very sharply for that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Quite right. (laughs) (laughs) And then, because I don't drink a huge amount or was driving, I had a little bit of white wine in my glass. I'm afraid I poured some sparkling water in it, and I think your father was just about to hit the ceiling with me for doing something completely insupportable. And I seem to to remember that you didn't drive quick enough or with enough urgency to the races, because we only left about 20 minutes to cover the 10 miles. And and, uh, I was driving your mother, and your mother was sort of saying to me, are you still in third gear, sort? things as we were going and, and I could, her, her, her fingers were drumming at the front and, and I was driving carefully and I very happy don't tend not to drink a huge amount so that was very good for me to, um, to very happy to drive I do remember the journey and I think I was becoming more and more nervous because it was my friend's mother and um, it was the only time in her life that she did anything with any t- you know precision timing wise those Cheltenham lunches you know arrive at 12 leave at 20 to 2 and get there before the first race so you've only got 14 minutes to do the journey well I just remember <laughs> cutting the nose off the brie putting sparkling wine in some white wine and driving and too driving slowly, too slowly. <laughs> Otherwise, the perfect guest. <laughs> Otherwise, the perfect guest. But it was extraordinary. So we've shared so much through our lifetime, actually, of, of loves or false trails in our love lives and careers as they've turned different corners than you wouldn't expect, perhaps. And you've then been with me through the deaths of both my parents and then Geordie's parents. You've been to rather a lot of funerals for me. It's been quite extraordinary, Smiles. But I think friendship is always about being there, isn't it? Particularly at times of crisis. It's about hugs. Better for better for worse, for richer for poorer. I mean, you know, friendship. There's friendship. And now that you're um, once more helping me with festivals, books, writing, and our life going forwards, I never. I, so that's always rather rather the fun part of it. I never know quite what you're going to uh, lob at me next. <laughs> <laughs>
So gentle love. <laughs> I'm not sure my husband does either. So I think Geordie is sometimes as surprised as anybody else. And occasionally when Geordie's away smiles, he'll ring me up and see how it's all going. And I say, it's absolutely fine, darling. And he sort of says, is there anything I should know about? And I say, oh, no, nothing at all. It's the usual thing about asking forgiveness rather than permission, which I think is... Always quite a good way to go forwards. It works quite well. Thank you for being my guest today, Smiles. And I'm not sure where our lives will lead us going forward. But I love the fact that I've known you and many other girlfriends for so much of my life. And I don't actually feel as if I have changed or you've changed. I know we've got a bit older. A few more wrinkles. wrinkles. But no, I think we're very much the same uh, at heart. As we were when you slammed the boot on your mop and broke the back of your car window. (laughs) I'm so glad we met. (laughs) So I smile. Thank you. Just to say, please do subscribe to this podcast. Then you can be first on the list every time it comes out.